You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 8, which we will treat modern trends in Christology. Especially we're going to begin here on the Enlightenment. And one of the things about the Enlightenment is that the Enlightenment didn't always enlighten Christianity. And that's going to be our starting point for today. We just finished discussing the medieval theology, medieval Christology of Thomas Aquinas. Of course, we're skipping over several centuries here. But it's really in the 17th and 18th centuries when we have large numbers of Enlightenment thinkers who begin to object to fundamental teachings of the Christian faith and really begin to not only object to certain Christian teachings, but in a systematic way try to show the superiority of reason and in a way the exclusivity of human reason. The human reason can't admit anything that is beyond itself. No supernatural truths, no miracles, no supernatural revelation. And so, of course, this will profoundly shape the way Jesus Christ is viewed. So here we're going to begin looking at, as I said, how the Enlightenment and certain trends of modernity have shaped theology. We're going to look at a few key figures, and within those key figures we will kind of see how the history develops. In this lecture, Lesson 8, we're going to focus mainly on, and since what I would call detrimental trends towards the person of Christ. And then in Lesson 9, we're going to look at more positive trends of the person of Christ. The first thinker I want to begin with is Gotthold Lessing. Lessing was a German theologian, philosopher, and in the you know, late 18th century. And during that time, he became more and more convinced that we needed to rethink the way Christianity was treated. He was not a Catholic, but was in a Protestant Germany. And what he began to think about was that Christ led man to come to a truth about man, but a truth that man would have already known anyway, but a truth that God needed to give us Christ in order to lead us there. He wrote many works, but one of his great works was known as the education of the human race. And what he saw was that Christ was a great educator of man and that Christ came as a great moral teacher. We'll see this is similar to certain things we talked about in St. Thomas Aquinas, but as we'll see, St. Thomas taught that Christ was a teacher, understanding that Christ was perfect God, perfect man. Lessing and others, Enlightenment thinkers, will treat of Christ as a teacher, but they will see him as a teacher who is merely human. So how does Lessing think that God educated the human race in Christ? Well, what he says is that Human beings were, in a sense, a state of primitive moral status in ancient times. And they were very crude and vulgar and very violent and somewhat brutish in Lessing's mind. And that Christ came along to sophisticate man, to teach man true morality, to teach man to truly love others as they love themselves. And we know, of course, that Lessing himself shows a bit of ignorance of history. There were many other ancient religions and ancient cultures which had a very sophisticated moral status, simply Confucius and the East, to name one, of a very high level of moral thought. 
But anyway, this was Lessing's argument. And Lessing saw that in Christ, Christ, in a sense, taught man what it meant to be ethical. Christ taught the human race what it meant to be enlightened. And for 1,500 years, that was necessary. Only from Christ could man learn to become ethical. But now, in the Enlightenment, man can become ethical on his own. Lessing compares Christ to a good English grammar. In your elementary school, you have to learn English from a grammar. And by studying the grammar, you learn how to write. You learn how to read. You learn how to have command of the English language, or whatever language you might have learned first. But once you know that grammar, once you eventually master it, you can throw the grammar away. You can throw away your grade school English books. You don't need them anymore because now you know the language. Well, what Lessing taught was that Christ is like that. In an early state of development, man needs Christ. Unsophisticated men need Christ to teach them how to become ethical. But once they've become ethical and once the human race as a whole, as Lessing thought in modernity, has become ethical and become moral, he no longer needs Christ. In a sense, you can set Christ aside in the same way we set aside our childhood grammars aside. We no longer look at them. We no longer need Christ because everything we needed to know, we could have known on our own. We needed to be educated by Christ. Lessing came up with, as you might put it, one particular word picture or an image to show what he thought was the problem with so much what you might call classical approaches to Christianity. Lessing wrote this. He said, the accidental truths of history can never become the proof of necessary truths of reason. That, then, is the ugly, broad ditch which I cannot get across however often and however earnestly I have tried to make the leap. So according to Lessing, the accidental truths of history are separated by an ugly, broad ditch from the necessary truths of reason. What does he mean by that? Well, Christ, Christ's humanity, Christ's teachings, Everything about Christ, of course, is historical. It's an accidental truth of history that Christ happened to become incarnate, that Christ happened to walk on the shores of Galilee, that Christ taught the Sermon on the Mount. These are accidental truths of history. And none of these accidental truths of history can teach us, according to Lessing, the necessary truths of reason. Truths of reason, which would ultimately be for the Enlightenment, the grounding of right moral action. Well, Lessing thought that ultimately, in terms of human action and human behavior and human morality, we must depend on reason alone. Only what is necessarily true by reason can be a sure guide for human conduct, a sure guide for human life, a sure guide for what humans need to know about the truth. Anything that is accidental, based on the history of Christ, the history of Israel, or the history of the church, or the history of any moral thinker, is not going to get us there. These are accidental. Things that just happen to happen in history are separated by an ugly broad ditch in Lessing's terms. So obviously then, if that's his starting point about reason, that you can't get from accidental truths of history to necessary truths of reason, then obviously Christ is going to at best be unnecessary. Christ simply helps us, he's an accidental truth of history who helps us discover necessary truths of reason, but we don't ultimately need him. We needed him early on, we no longer need him. Now, after a lesson, Soren Kierkegaard, a famous 19th century Dutch philosopher, theologian, 
in a way, kind of responded to this view and simply asked the question, well, what if a teacher came along? What if a teacher came along who taught that the accidental truths of history lead to eternal truths? What would we do? What grounds would we have for saying that's false? What if a teacher came along and taught that there was something wrong with our human nature? Not a teacher like Socrates. Socrates taught anybody has the ability to come to know, even if for Socrates the great truth is to begin and recognize that you know very little. Nonetheless, Socrates thinks that in each person there's a capacity to know. What if a teacher comes along and says, in each person, there's a wounded capacity. There's, in a sense, a block to know the truth. As Christ comes along and says, you know, sin prevents man from hearing the truth. And only, in a sense, once sin, original sin is removed, can man hear the truth. What if a man comes along and says that the decisions we make in this life are going to affect our eternal life? So in that sense, that the accidental truths of history are the only means to come to know and are going to determine the uh, necessary truths of reason. And what Kierkegaard raises, and in a way, in a very deft fashion, against enlightenment is simply, what if a man comes along and says what you say isn't going to happen? What if a man comes along and says this? What if a man, namely a man, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, teaches and taught that we can only learn what the truth that he's teaching us if he has first healed us, if he has first renewed us. And he teaches that our eternal destiny is based upon choices we make in this life. Can we come with any reason why that is false? Kierkegaard says that no, we can't. We might not have predicted it would happen that way. We might, like Lessing, have thought that accidental truths of history would never lead to necessary truths of reason. We might have thought that all men aren't wounded by original sin and simply could come to know the truth on their own. But nonetheless, this doesn't give us an argument against somebody who comes and says differently. Again, if Christ has come into the world and Christ has taught that we can only come to the truth through him because we've been wounded by original sin, only through him can we be healed. And that through him, our actions in this life can lead to eternal beatitude, or if we reject him, actions in this life can lead to eternal damnation. And Kierkegaard simply says, if you just think about that rationally in a way, there's no rational argument against that. There's no rational argument that can contradict if Christ has indeed said this. Well, another key thinker in this period is Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant, in a way, takes Lessing's arguments but really refines them and makes them much stronger. Kant is in many ways probably one of the greatest philosophers of the Enlightenment, and certainly uh, very influential in ethics particularly, but influential in all fields, epistemology, etc. Kant wrote a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, and that really was his project, to fit religion Christianity is the religion he's most interested in, the one he kind of assumes having been raised, pietist, Lutheran. He basically accepts Christianity way. What of Christianity can we keep if we subject it to the demands of reason alone? And ultimately, he wants to try to keep much of Christianity, but only after sifting it through a filter. Sifting it through a filter where, again, in the way similar to Lessing, 
The only truths that are really true of Christianity are those truths that we could have known by reason alone, or that we can now know by reason alone. In this way, the whole vision of Christ, of course, is going to be changed. Christ is going, again, to be an example, but he's going to be an example to lead us to come to know, by reason alone, what we should have already known. Kant also has a very strong distinction. When he speaks of reason alone, he really means reason that derives its understanding from principles alone, from what he calls a priori principles, not, in a sense, from the experience of the world, not from you know, living in the world, not from hearing things about the world, not from authority, but simply from logical reason reflecting on its own understanding. That's what he sees as reason alone. And so because of this, in this book, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, he has a long section where he treats the question of how do we understand Christ as an archetype? And he actually says that Christ isn't really going to be the archetype. Because the archetype, which is in a way the first type, the archetype, the pattern after which everything is made, for Kant, that archetype of our moral action, the archetype of the perfect human, is going to have to be already in our reason. Because Kant says that whatever we do morally has to be based on reason alone. So the true archetype of human action, the true standard of human behavior, the true standard of moral duty, for Kant, is going to have to be found within the reason alone. So Christ comes as an example that helps man discover the archetype which is in his mind, which he could have known by reason alone, but was unable to. So I'm going to read a couple quotes here to look at how Kant speaks of Christ. Let me um, give just an example here. What he does, he says that, if Christ came as the perfect example of a godly-minded man, and through his teachings, conduct, and his sufferings, he gave a perfect example of a man who is well-pleasing to God, even if that, even if Christ is given the perfect example of what it means to be a man, he says, there is no reason, as he puts it, we have no cause for supposing him other than a man naturally begotten. What's he denying there? He's saying there's no reason to suppose that Christ is supernaturally begotten. Christ is not born of God. He is simply a man naturally begotten just like us. And what he says, actually more so, even though he says, says it is impossible to deny that Jesus is supernaturally begotten, it's possible that he was, but he says there's no reason to do so. And even more so, he says that if we do think of Christ as supernaturally begotten, it's going to be harder to see Christ as an example. This is a very popular view. If Christ was truly God, then to be holy was easy for him. So how is it an example to a human being who's fallen such as I am? And so Kant continues. He actually says that if Christ was supernaturally begotten, it would make him less of an example to us. He puts, and I'm going to quote here, the elevation of such a holy person above all the frailties of human nature would rather, so far as we can see, hinder the adoption of the idea of such a person for our imitation. So Kant expresses a very simple idea here, that if Christ didn't suffer from the wounds of sin or the frailties that we have, then he's not an example for us because, of course, it was easy for him to be holy. It says a little farther and actually says that 
there would be such a distance between Christ and us that it would no longer be held up as an example for us. So Kant ends up actually saying that Christ, if he were supernatural begotten, would not be an example for us and that would not help us come to know what is true and what is actually how we should live. So for Kant, religion within the limits of reason alone, we have a Christ who is reduced to his humanity and who is reduced to giving us a moral example. So therefore, salvation is no longer being saved from our sins and having eternal life with God. Salvation is no longer a supernatural salvation, but it's simply living a perfect natural life. Christ is the perfect natural man who helps us live a perfect natural life. Again, all the supernatural has, in a sense, been weeded out of Christianity. The next person I want to look at is Friedrich Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher is really the father of liberal Protestant theology. His name in German, by the way, Schleiermacher, literally means fog maker. So that's kind of a nice way to remember him as he literally kind of brings a fair amount of fog to theology and kind of clouds our understanding. Well, just as Kant thought that reason couldn't trust in a way in the external objective world, but had to turn inward, and so therefore subjective reason and reason's subjective knowledge and its reasoning from a priori principles was the only way it could come to truth. Well, Schleiermacher, in a sense, extends that a little bit to say that, well, we no longer have to reason by a priori principles, but he still accepts the split between the objective reality and the subjective world. What Schleiermacher says that it's not just our subjective reason, but it's our subjective experience that becomes the root to God. We can't find God through objective means, through objective revelation, through the sacraments, or through the Bible, or through the church. But we find in each man what Schleiermacher called this feeling of absolute dependence. And this feeling of absolute dependence is this experience that every man has, according to Schleiermacher, of being absolutely dependent upon a transcendent being. And this experience is purely subjective, purely interior. And this is, in a way, the proof of God's existence. It's not an objective proof, it's not a rational proof, but it's simply an experiential proof. And so, here again, Christ comes not as the divine Savior, but Christ comes as a man who is most perfectly filled with the feeling of absolute dependence. And he wakes up in other men this feeling of absolute dependence. Again, we have Christ as a natural man who helps other men to become natural men. The supernatural element, and of course the whole objective element, has been rooted out of Christianity. The objective element of Christ, of the God becoming man, of the Eucharist, of God becoming flesh and making his flesh available to us in the Eucharist, the objective forms of the church, the authority of the church, the objective authority of scripture, the written word of God, all those are left behind for this interior feeling of absolute dependence. In a surprising manner, in the 20th century, we find that in some ways Kant and Schleiermacher, both great liberal Protestant theologians, are brought into the Catholic world in many ways through the theology of Karl Rahner. Karl Rahner was perhaps one of the most influential Catholic theologians after Vatican II. The Second Vatican Council was held between 1962 and 1965. And in the years that followed, in the late 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and even up to today, Karl Rahner is perhaps the most influential, just in terms of numbers, Catholic theologian. 
Bronner's theology or Reinerian theology has often formed in the United States in many ways the common parlance many seminaries and universities in Catholic universities and colleges and theology faculties in the United States. But we really see that Rahner, in a way, accepts and takes up this liberal Protestant trajectory from Kant and Schleiermacher. And what Rahner does that is like them is he says, we must begin our Christology by looking at anthropology. So anthropology means the study of man, the study of the psychological experience of man, or reasoning from our experience of knowledge in the way that Kant did to what are the structures of that experience. What Rahner did then was he said that when we look at man, we see that man is capable of freedom. And that since man can act in freedom, man, in a sense, is capable of this infinite possibility. That when man begins to act in freedom, he sees that there's this infinite capacity, infinite possibility before him because he is truly free. And so from that, in the finite man, there's this capacity for the infinite in this experience of freedom, not the actual action, but in a sense, even prior to that action, in the very beginning stages of that action. And what Rahner says then, that the whole relationship between finite man and the transcendent God is actually found in this first experience of freedom. And this, in a way, follows from Kant's second critique, or the critique of practical reason, if you're familiar with that. So what does Rahner do? Well, what Rahner does then, in a sense, he reduces Christology to anthropology. He doesn't deny that the divine word is present in Christ, but he simply says that, in a way, the human nature is all we have access to, all we can reason about, all we can talk about. And so we have, to, in a sense, to leave aside any reflections on the divine nature in Christ. One other way of looking at Rahner's thought is that Rahner and many other theologians thought that before Vatican II, many Catholic theologies, many Catholic spiritualities, and say piety within the church, was overly, say, monophysite. Remember, monophysite means that there was only one nature and that the human nature had been absorbed into the divine nature. And so it was kind of monophysite Christology. Christ was, in a sense, only divine and not really human. His humanity was kind of de-emphasized, according to some people, popular piety. So what Rahner does, though, in a way, is he reacts against that, and he almost ends what I would call like a reverse monophysitism, where it's almost as though the divine nature gets absorbed into the human nature. We still say that Christ is divine and human, according to Rahner, but all we can really talk about is the human nature. And so this, then, is a quote from him. He says, this is what we mean by the Christian dogma of the Incarnation. This is quoting from Rahner. Jesus is truly man with everything that this implies, his finiteness, materiality, being in the world, his participation in history of the cosmos in the dimension of spirit and freedom in the history which leads through the narrow passageway of death. And then he continues, but when God brings about man's self-transcendence into God through his absolute self-communication to all men, so what's he saying there? He's saying that God brings about man's salvation by God's self-communication in Christ, well, what happens is, is that he says that that alone is, we've already had the fulfillment in one man, quoting, we have precisely what is signified by the hypostatic union. So what then is the hypostatic union for Rahner? For Rahner, it's simply when man is fully aware or fully self-transcendent into God. When man transcends his finiteness, 
transcends his limited, transcends his materiality into God. That's what is meant by the hypostatic union. But we already saw that for Rahner, that's simply proper to all men according to his anthropology. Because all men in their experience of freedom can transcend themselves, can have an experience of the transcendent God. So in a way, what Christ does, Christ doesn't change human nature. Christ doesn't renew human nature. Christ simply is the perfect man. Again, the perfect man who is perfectly self-transcending by the perfect experience of freedom into God. And as a result of that, in sense, is the first man and then allows all the rest of men to become true men in Christ. But again, we've had the Christology here, according to Rahner, reduced to anthropology. There's nothing distinctive really about Christ except that Christ has most perfectly realized this self-transcendence into God. I was going to cover in this lecture Edward Skillebeck's, but I'm going to cover that now in Lesson 9. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.